Does anyone have any questions, want to get started with questions? I don't know if there is anything that you kind of wanted to expand on or anything that you were thinking about since um, we left your session. Hi. Um, yes, I just thought of like so many books I want everyone to pick, pick up and read. <laughs> That's one of the main things I thought about. Um, there's just, there's like, such a beautiful birth of new authors and I and, and I know we all you know like love the classics and stuff but there has really been this like reemergence of, of beautifully crafted work written uh, by women also particularly written by um, people of color um, people with all abilities um, and I think that you know, for people who are just like hardcore readers, they're aware of them. But I think that there's this like gap in the world of, of people knowing that there's this availability of great literature um, that is useful. So I just wanted to name some authors because some of them have multiple books, um, all of which are, you know, valuable and, and worthy of being purchased and read. Um, some authors that I would love some people to, you know, for people to tap into um, as they continue to do this work. One is um, Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, she is absolutely amazing. Um, and another person is, oh, um, and this one is like not only informative, but also super fun to read, um, Tomi Adeyemi and her series, Children of Blood and Bone. Um, I like to call it like if Harry Potter centered police brutality. So it's like super high fantasy, um, but it attacks um, microaggressions and racial injustice. Um, so it's like it's it's like it, it's very informative and like, but also like not too heavy and like really fun to read and like magical powers and realms and things like that. Um, and so that is Children of Blood and Bone. There's a series. Um, it's a trilogy. The first two books are available. The third book is on its way by Tomi Adeyemi. Um, also, if you are dealing with younger people, right? Anything by Jason Reynolds and Tiffany Jackson is gold. Um, Jason Reynolds has just a plethora. He, he writes for both young adults and he writes middle grade books. So for a lot of you parents on here who are looking for awesome stuff to put in your kids' hands to help you navigate some of these conversations, um, this is great. There is a brilliant book um, by uh, Dr. Brianna, Brianna McDaniel um, called Hands Up. It's a picture book. So it's for um, younger kids. And uh, although she doesn't properly get credited for it, um, Brianna McDaniel was actually the one who, um, who created the thought theory or process, if you will, that we should look to be um, accomplices instead of allies. And so she's this beautiful picture book called Hands Up um, that deals with, that talks about all of the joyous things in which we do in our, with our hands up and how also sometimes it can be turmoil to be put in a position where you have to put your hands up. 
Um, and that book is All Hands Up um, by Dr. Brianna McDaniel. Um, obviously, Angie Thomas, um, her series, um, The Hate You Give, and now, well, not a series, but her book, The Hate You Give, which also now has a, pre, a prequel called Concrete Rose. Oh my God, Nick Stone is another amazing author. Um, her book, Dear Martin, just rocks me to my core. And it's all about dealing with PTSD after having um, had an incident with the um, police. Um, and it is um, centered around a young man who processes that by writing letters to Martin Luther King and it's called Dear Martin. Um, of course, obviously, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is an amazing, um, is an amazing writer who is doing awesome things. This one is one of my absolute favorites because it's, as you can tell, I live a lot in the kids space. Um, <laughs> this one, Nubia uh, by L.L. Bean, which is a DC graphic novel, um, which centers a young black girl as a, a superhero as she navigates some of the conversations um, that we are having today. This is another one of my like absolute favorites. So just a few authors and books that are definitely worth adding to your library, um, worth leaving on tables um, in your offices as you are seeing people to get them hooked so that maybe they'll get them later. Um, and also great books that if you want to have book clubs with friends where you are centering these conversations. And, and I, I personally feel that books are a portal into difficult conversations and a way that allows people to do it um, without the fear of the, the guilt that comes along sometimes with having these conversations with the, the trauma um, that's stirred up by having these conversations. I think literature is a perfect portal for that. And of course, you can purchase my books, um, <laughs> which also deal with these issues. Um, the young adult stuff that I write, I'm, I, I am even a super fan of, um, not because of me, but because of my co-author, Geely Siegel, who is speaking later today. And if you, I'm telling you guys, whew, that little redhead is a firecracker. You do not want to miss her session. Um, she is probably one of the most brilliant people I've ever had the pleasure and honor of knowing. And we co-author books for young adults, which adults seem to enjoy as well. Um, but we, we always write them in a dual narrative. So you get to see the perspective of a young Black teen as well as the perspective um, and as a, of a young white teen on the same page. And so our first book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, is about two girls, one Black and one white, who survived the night and race riots. Um, and we like to say that book is about a scenario that brought two girls together. And our newest novel, we say, is about one that rips two girls apart. It's about two young girls, one Black and one white, who have been best friends since kindergarten. And when they kind of haphazardly decide to take a knee, um, they're cheerleaders. And as they kind of haphazardly decide to take a knee on a Friday night at their high school football game, it's all about how there is a grand fallout from that and the big effect that it has on their friendship. And that one is called Why We Fly. Um, and then I have an adult nonfiction that's coming out in the fall that's available for pre-order now um, called How We Can Win. Um, my viral video that most people know is called How Can We Win? And the book is called How We Can Win. And for me, it is a, an expansion on the video, but also um, 
my take on what it is we can do to bring this nation together and and um, fix it because I am um, I definitely consider myself a grand patriot um, and I don't think that being a patriot means that you think your nation is without fault. I think that it means that you love it so much that you want to see it repaired. Um, so yeah, so if you guys have any questions. So we have a question in the chat. How do you avoid burnout? Mm. I love this question. How I avoid burnout is that I have a system which I use to make sure that my life is always balanced. And I'm a, you know, I'm a writer by trade. And so I always like things that I could write down. I keep journals. I absolutely love journaling. I just I just got a new journal that is so cool that I'm going to start writing it. Um, and so I keep journals and I have these things that I call the nine tenets of life. And I actually expand on it a great deal in the how we can um, how we can win book is that. Um, all right. Pins at the ready. I feel like there are nine primary tenets in life, and that is career. Home transportation, relationships, finances, health and beauty, hobby, education, and community. I'll say those again, career, home, transportation, relationships, finances, health and beauty, hobby, education, and community. And about once a month, I write down those nine tenets. And then I write what I have actively going in them on one side and I draw a line and I write on the other side if there's any growth I would like to see. So let's say in transportation that right now I have, you know, let's just say, for example, if I didn't have a car, I would write down um, public transportation as my mode of transportation. And then on the other side, I would write purchase a vehicle. But let's say in career, let's say I was working in my dream job. I'm like, I'm working at Gigi Dugenhauser Law Firm, and that is my dream job. Then I'm just going to write on the other side again, Gigi Dugenhauser. But what I can do in each category when I'm looking at what I have and what is aspirational or what growth changes I need, I can see where I'm missing something. And not only do I see where I'm missing something, sometimes under hobby, like my, my hobby is travel, right? I love to travel. So if I put down, if I look at hobby and then I put travel and I put the little semicolons next to it and I haven't been on vacation in six months, oh man, that means that I'm not balancing, that I haven't done, done the thing that keeps me calm. Or... For example, I'll look at community. 
and I may have 20 things under community. I may be on 10 boards and have four organizations that I'm running and six lectures that I have to give and two books that I have to write under community. And what I realize is like, oh, wow, right now in my life, my community work is way outnumbering the time that I'm spending, say, with family. Or it's, I have way more going on community than I have in career. So then what I'll look at is I'll look at community and go, okay, I have 20 things happening in community right now and nothing happening in hobby and nothing significant that I've done with my family and my car in terms of transportation. My car has been making a knocking noise for a month and I haven't done anything to fix it. So then I look at community and I go, okay, which of these four things can I send a very gentle, loving message to and say, as much as I love you guys and love working with you guys at this time, I'm going to need to take a step back and send resignation letters to those boards and then schedule to get that car repaired and then realize that I haven't done much at all with family and literally text my son and say, do you want to, um, he's, you know, he's 15 and say, let's go see a movie this weekend. You know, because you got to text the kids from the other room. Um, <laughs> let's go see a movie this weekend. So what it allows me to do and constantly reevaluating these tenants is to make sure that I'm keeping a balanced life and keeping a balanced life keeps me from burnout. As much as I want to get to my community, I also have to be my best self in order to properly give to them. And being my best self is going to come from a balanced life. And so, and that's how I keep myself from having burnout is constantly doing a check-in with myself to see if I'm balancing my life. Thank you, that was very helpful. I wrote down all the categories as well. <laughs> Any other questions from anyone? I've got a question, which is more sort of about like thought frameworks, but I mean, I was really struck in your presentation this morning about the discussion of um, lack of access to home ownership historically and how that's contributed to inequities over, uh, over generations and the ability to build wealth and maintain wealth in BIPOC communities. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also, so I do a lot of policy advocacy around homelessness and, and housing instability issues. And in that space, then a lot of the sort of national level advocacy conversation is about trying to get policymakers to focus on people who are in the most desperate circumstances right now, like people who are experiencing homelessness or on the brink of homelessness, who are about to lose public and subsidized housing, that kind of thing, who are disproportionately BIPOC households. And I mean, obviously, the correct answer is all of these issues are huge racial justice issues and need attention and need funding, you know, attention not only from us, but also from policymakers. Right. Um, but in terms of sort of thinking about priorities, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about how to navigate some of those tensions between like, do you serve, do, should, how, how do you advocate for the, the allocation of resources between people who are sort of the most marginalized and like survival level needs mm -hmm. and people who are 
in a, more of in a situation where they could be in a position to be building wealth if only there could be some, I mean, I'll use the word reparations here. Like I, I, I don't know if it would be strategic to use that necessarily when I'm talking to like a state legislator or something, right. but, you know, <laughs> uh, so th things to address some of these, the, the historical inequities about wealth building, which are usually gonna be targeting people who are in somewhat less absolute desperate level circumstances. Yeah, I think that, I think that, um, you know, we always are going to have to talk about um, the people who are in very strange situations, who there is a, a, a significant immediacy um, in terms of their need, when you're talking about people who are facing homelessness, loss of services, uh, thing like things like that, I think we should continue to advocate for making sure that their needs are met. Now, in terms of balancing it so that in dealing with those kind of more immediate needs that we are not um, throwing away the fact that it is a multi-tiered conversation and that there is um, there needs to be some of semblance of reparations, if you will, in terms of people who are working class, who put, who have the potential to move into a more, you know, middle class area, and and the fastest, quickest, smartest way to do that is through home ownership. Um, I think first of all, we have to expand access to information because there are a lot of these programs, um, not a lot, but there's a significant amount of programs like that who all that already exist that people are just unaware of. Um, that people are not being told about, that we're not utilizing spaces where these people can receive this information. And, and, I, and I know it sounds odd, but like one of those places um, that I think we can incorporate this is the unemployment office, for example. Lots of times as people are going through unemployment and receiving, un, you know, working towards their unemployment bill, benefits, these are not people um, by and large, who, who could not benefit from a track to home ownership. They are in a situation now where they are in between jobs, but the part of the services that are offered at the unemployment uh, office is to get them back gainfully employed. Um, you also have programs like that through the Goodwill, um, although not a government program, but the Goodwill is an organization who does a really great job at not just placing people in jobs, but placing people in jobs that allow them to earn a different decent living. And also uh, contrary to popular, uh, well, one of the things I think a lot of people don't know is that the Goodwill offers um, the, the trade education that I was speaking about on the earlier call. And so I think step one is, is just really like, pooling the resources that already exist towards a home um towards home ownership uh, loans that already exist forgivable loans and grants and things like that that already exist that people are just unaware of and making sure that we are thinking of resourceful spaces where this could be of a benefit to people um, as they're on their journey as part of their curriculum. Because if you're going to Goodwill to get employed and you go through one of their trade programs and then you're gainfully employed, there, should, there could be another section that's a follow-up that offers both financial and homeowner literacy as an alumni. Same thing through the unemployment office. As people are going through and getting resumes and services and things like that, once they become gainfully employed, there should almost be like alumni resource programming and incorporated in that can be financial literacy 
and a pathway to home ownership. So I think that that's one, one way to begin. Um, the other thing that I would say is, is that, you know, some people are going to have to take on the advocacy of the working class because that with the working class and the middle class, I mean, we all keep saying the middle class is being killed and the middle class is being forgotten and the working class is being stomped out. But then it's like, we make it difficult to corral resources for them because people are like, well, you know, they're doing okay. And it's like, they're not. They're in massive amounts of credit card debt. They cannot pay their student loans. They are, they are as my grandma used to say, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And so I think that there also needs to be a new set of advocacy and programming centered around working class and middle class families to help give them support systems and resources. All right, can we have another question here from an audience member? As a black woman, how do you manage your relationships, collaborations with white women given our individual and collective histories in a way that is productive? Are there core prerequisites that must be in place before that can happen? That's a loaded question. <laughs> you want me to repeat it or can you see the no, chat? I got it. Okay. No, yeah, I can see the chat and I totally, I totally got that. And, um, and, and this is a question that I'm used to, right? Because I've, I've co-authored um, three, now three books with Geely Siegel. And so we get asked this question all the time. So I, I, I can answer this question. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I would say is before Geely and I started working together, we already had a relationship. So we, we already had a relationship. We were friends. We were in a book club together. Our kids played together. There was a pre-established relationship there that allowed for safety and communication. Um, you guys can ask Geely about this later when she does her session. Um, we created what we call a brave space instead of a safe space in order to have conversations. And we actually created a safe word that when either one of us, as we were writing, when either one of us said this safe word, what that, um, and I won't tell you guys what the safe word is, but let's just say, for example, if it was zero, right? I would say zero, and then I was free to ask whatever question that I needed to ask of her and vice versa. If she said zero, then she was free to ask whatever question. And so we would kind of like brace ourselves, like, okay, this is a zero question all right, let me take my sensitivity cap off and let me be prepared to respond from a place of love. But the reason I was able to have this kind of working relationship with Geely is because I know unequivocally that, that Geely would never intentionally do or say anything to harm me and vice versa. She knows that I would never intentionally do or say anything to harm her. So it allowed us to have a brave space instead of a safe space. Because see, a safe space means you keep everybody comfortable and you say whatever is comfortable in the room and everyone feels good and fuzzy and warm inside. A brave space means that 
I am going to have the, the nerve and the gall to ask this question that in some circles may be deemed inappropriate, but you are the person that I feel brave enough with to ask this question. And I hope that in asking this question, what you are going to give me is a brave response that's rooted in truth. The key to that though, is what I said originally, which was she and I already had a relationship that allowed us to, to, to basically to stabilize our trust in a way that allowed for us to have that relationship. The, the type of books that I write with Geely and the subjects that we tackle, I could not willy-nilly write that with anyone else. It would have to be someone that I had this type of relationship with because it's difficult. And we're still very close friends, but we had bad days. We had days where we were like, you know what? Based on what I've been dealing with with you today, I don't want to talk to you today. Give me 24 hours and we can reconvene tomorrow on this book because right now I just want to slap you, you know? And so, but you can only do that with an establishment of trust. So what I would say is anyone um, who wants to have that kind of collaboration with you First, it's gonna to have to do some trust work in order for it to be productive. I hope I answered your question. Yes, definitely building that, that trust um, and holding people accountable when you feel like that trust has been violated. And okay to have space at times and say, you know what, today is not the day that we're gonna do this. Maybe we try it again tomorrow. <laughs> um, I love your common sense, practical approach to affecting change, like having the unemployment office educate people about home ownership, among many other great ideas you have suggested. And I would just, I mean, to that comment, yes. And I would also push us in legal services to really think about how we can expand our models to think about how we can offer these, this kind of education to folks. So as people are coming into our offices and saying, having trouble with the unemployment pieces, maybe there are ways that we can adapt our office space or have um, additional resources to also take the lead and provide in these educations, because that's what this is about, pushing, right? And expanding and rethinking our service delivery model and how do we push beyond just a simple lens of we're here to do unemployment, so that's it, and really expanding that. So I just wanted to add that piece around, you know, instead of saying the unemployment office, what is our responsibility again as folks who are working in the social justice place to begin to expand our service delivery model? So I just wanted to say that. So basically moving on, have you considered running for office yourself? We need your voice where decisions are being made on how to allocate resources slash, slash energy. Um, I definitely have considered running. I don't think that it will happen anytime soon. I, I think it will happen. Um, when people ask me what my, you know, like what my dream job would be, um, I say, darling, I have no dream job. I do not dream of labor. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> if, I, if people ask me what my dream job would be, I would say it would be secretary of education because I feel like we could fix all of this at the schoolhouse if we're actually utilizing the schoolhouse for what it is supposed to be for, which is to prepare young adults to be, I mean, prepare young people to become young adults and eventually old adults. Um, and so that would be my dream job would be, uh, 
Secretary of Education. And so I think long-term, no time soon, but I think long-term um, my pathway is definitely going to be um, to run for a school board seat. Do you have any ideas of what legal services staff can do to address the need for civics education? Wait, can you repeat that for me one more time? Do you have any ideas of what legal services staff can do to address the need for civics education? Yes, utilize the internet. Utilize the internet. Um, there is so much misinformation in the world. What we need is more practical, highly educated, skilled and thoroughly thought out people entering the space of Instagram, Twitter and TikTok and like combating all of the misinformation with proper information, right? And so bite-sized information is what people love right now. And so it's, it's very simple to create bite-sized information that can be put out in the world. I mean, it takes nothing to make like a little graphic that covers one point and make it a series and say, you know, instead of like overfeeding people say, this is part one of, of 12 pieces of civics on how to engage with your, with your state senator that we're going to give. And then we're gonna do an IG live with one of your state senators so they can talk about what that engagement um, looks like. Um, and then also like, I see a lot of people in legal services who have these amazing pamphlets when you come into the offices that have information about what their services can do and everything like that. But just like when you go into the doctor's office, right? When you go into the doctor's office, you may not, um, you may, you, you may be sitting in there and you might see 12 pamphlets on the wall, one that tells you about diabetes, one that tells you about um, how to do a proper breast exam, one that tells you about, you know, how to, how to check to see if you're having mental health concerns and maybe schedule an appointment for that. You can do, I feel like there should be the exact same thing in legal services office. That should be that same infamous wall that we see at the doctor's office. And one of, and one of them can say how to engage with your state senator, how to check to see which bills are coming up and being voted on how to um how to talk to uh, um how to communicate with your school board um how to deal with a a small you know um civil issue in court how to go file those initial papers maybe someone cheated you at a store there's basic paperwork that you could file yourself that you know a little pamphlet could do i know we're trying to like spin you know kill less trees and things like that but um you know, that same wall that exists for the medical world, I think should exist for legal services. And then utilize the internet. You could do these exact same things with graphics and fun 30 second videos and IG lives and fun reels. Like I can't tell you how many TikTok reels have educated me because someone is like dancing and like pointing to some facts as they come on. And then I'm sharing it with 50 other people. Yeah. Get your TikTok on y'all. Right, and there's good opportunities to expand programming like with internships and fellowships and that kind of way um, for people who, you know, we might be more, um, even than myself, more um, literate when it comes to some of those technologies. That's where 
things like internships and fellowships could come into play. Exactly. You've got those Zers and those younger millennials in your office already filing. Give them, give them an hour of a day that they are participating in social media attack with some guidance from you, obviously, but getting it done. Right. Um, we have a few more questions here. How can legal services begin to address health disparities? Ooh, that is a good one. So my, my dear friend, Gary Chambers, who also um, went viral last year, you guys heard him yelling at Connie at a, a board meeting. Um, <laughs> he advocated recently and got an emergency room. Um, well, not recently, a few years ago, um, prior to him going viral, he was already doing the work. And one of the things that he advocated for was getting an emergency room in his community because there wasn't one um, that existed. And so, I mean, and that was, and it, the, the nearest emergency room, I think was like six or seven miles from the community in which his, his friends and family and parents were living in. And he started a community action group. And one of the things that he was able, the, one of the reasons why that community action group was successful is because of the donated legal hours mm. that was given to them by some lawyers who may no longer live in that community that are from that community who wanted to assist in the advocation of getting the emergency room there. The other thing is someone needs to start a hotline. If you feel like there is a disparity in the, your treatment and your services um, at a hospital, there needs to be a hotline that you could call with a professional um, where you could talk to people multi-tiered, both someone in the medical industry and then someone in the legal services to say, hey, I went to this doctor, I was having this issue, I did not feel heard, this is what has happened to me, this is where it's happened. I would like to receive some assistance on how to A, better advocate for myself um, next time, or B, to learn the system of what chain of command I need to go up in my advocation for myself, my child, my elderly parent, whoever that advocation is needed for. You know, I just went through one of the most difficult times in my life and that my mother recently passed away and she was in home, she was in hospice. My, the saving grace for the advocacy for my mother was the fact that I have a sister who is a registered nurse. So therefore she understands the process of what is supposed to happen. She understands the process of what good care and what bad care looks like, what services we're supposed to receive, what they are supposed to have. And I thought through myself as we we're going through this process, my mother is blessed that she has a child that is a registered nurse. But how do we extend these services to people who don't have a family member in the medical field or the legal field? So I think in working with organization, working with um, certified nurses assistant services, um, hospice services, um, clinic services, and having volunteer community advocates who come from the, med the medical field and from legal, legal services, the biggest thing that people are missing in a lot of these spaces is advocacy. 
someone who has the language to stand up for them and to know when they may just be in an emotional state and, and what they're requesting is not realistic, but also know when they are not receiving the best services available for them. So I think having on-call advocacy services are amazing. Let me tell you something. That is the one thing that I took away from this moment was like, oh man, the blessing my mother has, the best thing me and my other siblings have, having my sister here who understands this process, but what about those who don't have that? And how do we create that? How do we create, um, how do we recreate that for other people, especially marginalized people who are usually shut out and, 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 not, and, and not told what's available to them and then not listened to when they know something is wrong? Mm -hmm. For any of our grantee organizations that are here in the room, that's a great idea for a fellowship proposal, hint, hint. <laughs> um, getting those hot lights up and running, getting those volunteer hot folks in, in the, the hospitals and in the community. So anyone who's on this call and this way in this room, you want a fellow? That's a good, Kimberly's given us a lot of nuggets and some good ideas. Um, and also what I hear from you also is again, getting back into that community lawyering model, you know, of going into the communities, understanding the needs of the community, and that helps us determine our projects. Instead of us thinking and saying, here's what we think needs to be done, or here's, let's put more money into X, Y, and Z. No, let's go into the community. Let's find out what the community needs are. And like you said, with Gary Chambers, they need an emergency room. So as attorneys and folks working in legal aid, we fit in where we fit in. You know, we respond to the needs as they present themselves instead of us going in and saying, here's what I think you need. Or does anyone need help with unemployment? Okay, that's great. And at the same time, there may be some other pressing needs that folks need help with at that time. But if we don't ask, if you don't come from that perspective, then we'll never really know. So true. Um, another question, I'm, I'm curious how injustices in the legal system today fit into the monopoly analogy. Ooh, boy, don't they. Um, <laughs> um, I think that a lot of what happens today is, um, and, I, and I think I, I spoke a little bit about this earlier, is just how, um, how much of our just even, let's, let's just talk traffic, right? How much of our traffic court has huge price tags on them that people cannot pay. And our response to that is to treat it like a criminal offense instead of what it is, which is an economic offense, right? And I'm not saying we should go back to building debtors prisons or anything like that. But what I'm saying is I have to say that because people will take it to the extreme, like debtors prison, got it, go. Um, what I'm saying is if you cannot pay a ticket where the fine is based in economics, like, okay, you didn't have this registration, which is required. And so now you have this ticket for $400 and you are unable to pay that ticket. Why are we criminalizing that? That's an economic issue. When I have an economic issue in the private sector, it goes to my credit report. No one can file against me to put me on a, a, a path towards jail. If you have an economic economic traffic issue, then it puts you on a pathway to jail. Because if you can't pay it, then you have to go into the probation system. The probation system is a 
we think you're bad and we're now monitoring you. And if you do something bad, now you're going to jail because you're on the iffy list. You should not be on that list from an economic issue. You didn't pay your registration because you didn't have the money and you have to pay the money in order to be registered. And now you don't pay it. And now you're on probation. Now you're headed towards criminality when you actually should be in the same situation you're in in the private sector. If I can't pay this, then it goes on my credit. Then I'm going to get harassed by collecting agencies. It's going to affect my ability to get an apartment. So, okay, let me eventually play this down so that I can build my credit score back up or do like that. But it's an economic issue that's being treated as a criminal issue. And so it is a way to continue to really keep marginalized people from having economic growth. Because if I couldn't pay $200 a month for car insurance, I definitely don't have $175 a month to give you on this probation system. I don't. I don't have it. So when I get into a fight with somebody at work and we get into a physical altercation and you come pick me up and now I'm on probation for this traffic ticket, now I'm going to jail. It's a pathway to jail where it should be like, be on my credit. It should be like, oh, she owes, you know, DeKalb County $300. She needs to pay that down. And the other thing is the reason these tickets are being written so heavily, heavily for the marginalized people who, for the record, cannot pay them is because we are over-policing these communities and we're over-policing these communities because we say they're filled with crime, but they're filled with crime due to poverty. It's a loop. It's a loop. I was muted. You spoke, you spoke earlier about the lack of trust in the laws and the lawmakers. Given how some schools and impoverished areas have become efficient pipelines to the criminal justice system, would churches and community center, centers be optimal places to teach, teach civics, home ownership education, as well as many other issues vital to impoverished communities with financial support from legal services funding or other grants? A big yes to that. A big, massive yes to that. Those are safe spaces. Those are places where people feel safe. You know, when you, it's, it's funny how people who have different lived experiences have no idea what's happening on the other side of the, of the road, right? So take, for example, myself. I went to three high schools um <laughs> I went I went to three high schools I went to first I went to I grew up in Chicago and I went first I went to Mother Macaulay which was a very exclusive all-girls private school I lasted there for about a semester and then the remainder of my freshman year I went to Percy O. Julian which is um a, a really troubled struggling high school we had metal detectors all that I went there for the remainder of my, my freshman year, and then I went there for my sophomore year. And then my junior and senior year, I went to the Chicago Academy for the Arts. And it's a private school, but it wasn't as strenuous as the first private school. It also was a creative space where we were allowed to sit in windowsills and classes and, and, and exercise freedom. I had such different experiences in those three places that I could, I could, I probably should write a book about how different they looked. 
the middle school that I went to felt like a prison. I was treated like a criminal. The, the way in which I was spoke to at that school was as if though there was always the expectation that whatever I was doing was bad or wrong and that there was a sense of surprise when I wasn't. That even the people who taught there, despite teaching there, had a view of us of wild animals. And it's hard for people who have not lived that school experience to understand that a lot of our kids don't trust the schools either. And this is part of what Gili and I address in Why We Fly is how different the punishment is for the black girl than it is for the white girl. All of the statistics show that for the same infractions, black kids are punished more harshly. And so when you talk about educating people on home ownership, on civics, on things like that, the first thing you have to do is put them in spaces where they feel trust because they don't feel trust in the legal system. They don't feel trust, marginalized kids don't feel trust and, and safe at school. A lot of people don't feel safe and trust at their job where they are forced to code switch because we are treated as if though the way we speak is remedial instead of cultural. And so when you think about where people are going to receive this information and show up for this information, then that comes back to what you guys were saying earlier about community legal services and that you have to understand where are those spaces where they feel safe. As much as I love you guys and the work that you are doing, they may not feel safe sitting in a legal office because there is a tension there that if I am here, it is because something is wrong. Now me, as a, as a writer and an art, artist, when I go sit in my lawyer's office, I don't feel that way because I'm sitting there because someone's trying to cut me a check. But that is not most people's lived experience. It definitely wasn't mine growing up. You sit in a legal office, something is wrong. So where do people feel safe? They feel safe in community centers, which we've gotten rid of a lot of, way too many of. They feel safe at church. They feel, you know, they feel safe at clubs. People are scared to get creative. Throw a day party at a nightclub on the roof and educate the people with some snacks. No liquor, but snacks. Find a park and have, sorry about that guys. Find a park, find a park and have a meeting in the park. Have a meeting in the park with picnic baskets and the whole nine, but find places where people will feel safe because when people feel safe, then they listen. I, I stand out on street corners at events and give lectures longer than the lecture. Uh, and give lectures that run twice as long as this. And people you would not expect stand out there and listen to me. 
Because one, I'm in a space where they feel comfortable. And two, normally I'm on deadline for a lot of books. So my hand, my nails are short right now. But normally I have like really long, extra bedazzled nails, right? And big eyelashes. And you saw the video, my hair is up in a bun. And part of that is because I feel natural in my hood girl flair because I know that they know that I'm, it's a calling card. They know I'm one of them. And they know they can trust me. And they know that I came from where they came from. So I understand their trauma. So even when I'm bringing a lawyer or a doctor or a senator or a state rep or a councilwoman to stand with me in that moment, they feel safe because I'm there. They feel safe because of where we are. And they, and they trust that my intent is to do no harm. So they trust that I would only bring in people whose intent is also to do no harm. So if you're doing these, yes, find safe spaces like that for them to be in, but also partner with people that they trust as well and that they can identify with. And a lot of people get mad like, why are y'all bringing in Cardi B and little Baby and these rappers who are rapping negative things to this moment? Because they're gonna get the people's attention. And then you just show up and give them all the meat. That's just the booking of dessert and Cardi B and little baby and all these people showing up to these type of events is the appetizer. Come on in. I know you like little baby. Okay, bigger than black and white. Now here's the meat. Here's your pathway to home ownership. Here's how you engage civically with the people who you need to change things. And here's the thing. We also have to teach people when we're at their moments how much power they have locally. We keep teaching them about federal government. We don't teach them how much power they have locally. I watched a, head, a half a dozen 19-year-old girls from Agnes Scott College get a rape law changed through grassroots lobbying, six 19-year-old girls. If you stand on the corner here in Atlanta on, on Moreland and Memorial, if you stand on one side of that street and you have a user's amount of marijuana, you are going to jail. If you walk 10 steps and stand on the other side of that street where you, you go from DeKalb County to Fulton County, you're getting a $50 citation for the same user's amounts that 10 steps away will take you to prison. So the people in DeKalb need to be advocating saying, hey, over there in Fulton, they've decriminalized marijuana and you get a citation. We want citations over here too. We don't wanna go to jail no more for that. But you have to teach people that that's where their power lies. Because guess what? They know me down at the Capitol. They know me down at City Hall with my annoying ass because I'm always down there bugging them with a group of people, bugging them with the petition, bugging my lawmakers about writing in a law, putting a law in place, getting, getting lobbyists to put together a bill that I want passed down there. And then knowing who I gotta go poke, knowing that I can stand in the rotunda of the Capitol once session ends. And as long as I don't disrupt session, I have every legal right to talk to my state lawmakers when they get to the bottom of those steps that I can't take the steps. That's why they can never arrest me. Good leaders go home. Mm. You know the law. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, that's 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 a that's powerful right there. Good leaders go home. We know the law. 
And I just what you said st stood out to me as well, because I think sometimes there is this savior mentality of, you know, as legal service people or as attorneys, we're coming in to save you. And what you're saying is that we need to shift a little, little bit in addition to doing what we need to do for folks. We also need to teach them how to save themselves by having the information, by knowing the laws and advocating for themselves. And that's 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 a shift. Yeah. Yeah. That is getting to live the American dream, which is to be a, an active participant in the fullness of the freedom that we all talk about. Yeah, an active participant in the freedom that we all talk about. You're dropping some nuggets today. <laughs> Given that schools are key to both allowing children, we, only, we have about four minutes left, but even if we don't get to all your questions, please don't let this be the last time that we interact with Kim, shoot her an email, invite her to your program, order her book, start a book club, invite her to facilitate the book tub, read her book. So let this be the first encounter, but not the last encounter. Um, but we'll try to push through some of these questions that we have in the last four minutes. Given that schools are a key to both allowing children of different backgrounds to get to know each other and bringing economic opportunities to a more equal footing, what are your ideas about how schools, especially public schools, can be financed differently so that so they are not segregated as most still are? Yeah, because we have an educational caste system. That's what it is. We have an educational caste system. The rich get a good education and the poor get a bad education because it's based on property tax. So if you got six dollars in property taxes in your community, you get six dollars worth of education. If you got a hundred dollars, and in, 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 in property tax, then you get $100 worth of education. And you can definitely see the difference when you go into marginalized schools and the ceilings are falling in and they're full of asbestos and you have students sharing a book. And you see schools in non-marginalized neighborhoods who are not private schools, who are public schools, who are building new football fields. Mm -hmm. So we need to address that first is like, this is why I want to be Secretary of Education, because we need to revamp how we fund schools. And, and it definitely does not need to be via property tax, because that is an educational caste system. If you're rich, you'll get a good education. If you're poor, you won't. And that's not what America is supposed to be about. So I think that we, um, I have like a long laundry list of things. I have like a whole proposal I've been working on that. But I think that there it is multi-tiered in the way in which we can fund education. So you get each equal education. But I think also you have to um, you have to I think it should be state controlled. And the reason that I think it should be state controlled, because there are different needs in different states. I grew up in Illinois. I now live in Georgia. The educational needs there are very, very different. They're very, very different. So this idea that we could drop a blanket idea of like what kids should be learning and it should be one size fits all. This is an issue that is even affecting kids who are neurodivergent. I'm neurodivergent. I grew up with ADHD. The way in which the system is set up for me to learn didn't work for me. So I just got labeled a bad kid. Can y'all believe that? They told me I was dumb. I went through school thinking I was stupid, honestly. And this is how I found books because I needed some escapism, some place to hide because I was being told on a daily basis that I was stupid because no one could figure out the way in which to teach me. And so, although I'm not a fan of what charter does in the sense of how it reallocates funds in a way and how it is part of an engine that assists 
with gentrification. So a lot of times those charters turn into um, spaces in which and, you know, push forward regentrification and the kids that these schools are built for. Eventually, these kids' parents can no longer afford to live in those neighborhoods and then they're gone. What I do appreciate about the charter system is the individualized direction of teaching. We have a charter school here, Wesley International, that focus on, focuses on international studies and education. And so the kids are dual languaged the entire run of the school system. That's very productive for a specific group of kids. Whereas you have Charles R. Drew Charter School here that has a very, very, and it's, ooh, it's a rarity. And my son went there for some time and I'm glad he got the opportunity to go there. Was very, very focused on economics. They had SunTrust build a bank inside of the school. And on Wednesdays, the kids came to school and banked for themselves and the parents weren't allowed to stand in line with them, which is stand back while they handled their own banking needs. And so I think that I think that what we have to do is recognize that school should not be what it was turned into, which was just a place to put kids while people go to work nine to five in the factory. And so that we're training them to be factory workers and factory, you know, have a factory worker um, system in their mind that everybody has to do the same thing and put the same cog in the same box forever, that we actually have to recognize that education is a place to be lit. It's a place to be fun. And it's a place to grow people and expand their thinking. You know, part of, part of what I hate about this notion of fighting critical race theory is the notion of fighting critical thinking. And part of what we have to do is expand the ability to have some critical thinking and say, how can we get more creative? How can we, how can we expand on, um, not everyone's gonna be an entrepreneur, but kids who are interested in that track and um, entrepreneurship. I'm, I'm an old lady, I'm a Gen Xer. I remember when I was in high school where there was still trade education in schools. You could graduate from high school and be a licensed cosmetologist upon graduation. What happened to that? You could full-fledged go be a woodworker when you graduated from high school. You could directly go into a program in culinary arts for high school. We forgot what the schoolhouse is for. The schoolhouse is supposed to be this so we can create educated, productive, successful, stable members of society. People always ask me if there's one, and, I, and I'll, I'll leave with this. People always ask me if there's one wish that you wish for your people, Kim. If there's one wish you wish for Black people, what is it that you wish for? I wish for mediocrity. Mm. And what I mean by that is this notion that you tell me that the playing field is even because we have LeBron and Oprah and Ava DuVernay is crazy. When the median income for a Black family is $17,000 and a median income for a white family is $170,000. I don't pray for everybody to be great. I pay for some of us to thrive in mediocrity. For us to just be smart people who want to build a family and buy a house and be able to afford our cars and be able to pay off our student loan debt and earn a good income and be able to take our kids to Disney. And that's it. Why do I have to be LeBron level talented 
to be successful. What I pay, pray for my people is mediocrity. The ability to just be and still thrive. And school could be the pathway to that if we actually used it for what it is. Because let me tell you something. I don't know how many of you guys are, are homeowners, but if you've ever played a, paid a plumber or an electrician or had someone build a deck, you know that there is ways out there we could be educating kids to have successful mediocrity and live great. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Kim. I mean, we have to hop off here because we have our next session at 1.15, but I just wanted to throw in a last question here. Can you just drill down a bit quickly on facilitating economic, economic growth as a racial justice issue? Many of our legal services resources focus on, for example, protecting means-tested benefits, like we talked about welfare that do not build wealth. Often mm -hmm. we consider this our core practice rather than areas like education, which we've been talking about, or foreclosure prevention that might contribute to wealth building. Ooh, that was a lot. <laughs> so basically drilling down a bit on facilitating economic growth as a racial justice issue. I think you talked a lot about it as it refers to education. And um, I guess the point is that in legal services, we do do a lot of protecting means-tested benefits that do not build well, uh, rather than things like looking at um, how we change education, looking at how we change policies and practices, foreclosure prevention, home ownership, and that kind of stuff that contributes, that can contribute to wealth building. Yeah, I think for me, if if I had to say to somebody, okay, you're putting together a grant and you want to, and we're going to focus on economics, but we can't run the full gamut. But right now, let's deal with this one core thing to get us on track. I think it's trade education for me. I think it's trade education because I think that a lot of times why people even find themselves actually, the ones who are actually committing crimes and you're talking about theft and drug dealing and all of this, it's because it's a means to be above making the bare minimum minimum wage, which nobody can survive on. And even if we get these $15 minimum wage, let's be real, $15 is already still pushing it in today's economic space in terms of being able to be successful. And so I think how you combat that is with trade education. I yeah. think we reintegrate trade education. I think people work on, um, as social justice advocates, reintroducing trade education into high schools and also making sure that kids are, are aware and making sure that these programs are not just available to high school students, but look at programs that are 30 and under, right? The 20s is when we have the chance to help people get it right and get on a right path. So I think of creating programs for young adults, which is a, a forgotten group, right? Because once they turn 22, 23, we're like, oh, well, you're an adult now, figure it out. They are, I'm 45 years old. I can tell you, I did not have nothing figured out at 23, 24, 25 years old. Create youth adult programs for kids between the ages of 18 and 30 that are centered around trade education, first time home, home buyer programs and understanding the legal system so that they could stay out of it. I think that's the key. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, we appreciate your time. We appreciate you being here. Um, this session was awesome. Um, again, like I said, let this not be the last encounter with you. You all have in this room here, you have her contact information. It's all on the website, um, ways to get in contact with her, ways to continue to engage with her. So thank you for dropping all the nuggets, all the tips, all the tools, the history, the education. We appreciate you um, and we hope to stay in touch. Yes, thank you guys for having me. It was my pleasure. Okay, have a wonderful afternoon, everyone. And we'll see you in the next session at 1.15.